question. Yes. Um, you know, you just before we meditated, you were talking about feeling um, it, it's pretty much no difference whether you're meditating or not. Well, that might be an exaggeration, but <laughs> it's not as big a difference as... <laughs> yeah, go ahead. I just wanted you to talk about that more, what, it, what it's like when you're not meditating, the similarities. Well, what's... Uh, the question was uh, that I had said something before the break about um, there being much less difference for me now between when I'm meditating and when I'm not meditating than there used to be. And uh, uh, I, I was asked if I would say a little bit more about the differences that aren't there. <laughs> <laughs> well, or, or, or what, what has changed. <clears throat> well, one of the things, uh, and I think maybe this, is what, this was one of the first things that I really started to notice, is that uh, when I would meditate, I would be really calm and peaceful and happy and everything is wonderful, and then uh, I'd get up from meditation, and, and depending on what was happening, that could disintegrate pretty quickly. And now it's just, you know, there's a continuity here. You know, depending on the practice I do and the depth that I go to when I sit, uh, those qualities will intensify. But, you know, it's sort of like turning the volume up a little bit, turning the volume, and the volume may be falling down a little bit over the course of the day, rather than, you know, the, the station going off the air. Right, right, right. <laughs> so that, that was probably one of, one of the first things that began to overflow from meditation into the rest of my life. Another one that is really important is when you're meditating and you have that awareness, you're you're in the present moment, you have that awareness of what's going on with you, what's happening in your mind. Well, you just have really strong, clear, introspective awareness of of what is happening in the moment. And uh, that's something that is, to a greater or lesser degree, the same thing, you know, the the intensity of the volume goes up and down. But most of the time I have that. The times when I don't, if I get really tired or sick or things like that, and I don't have that same mindfulness, I lose that clarity, I really, really feel the loss of it. So uh, that's there. The other thing is that in meditation, the sense of understanding, experiencing things in a, a more uh, real or, let's say, a less diluted way. You know, in, in meditation, uh, you come to really recognize that everything you experience is just you know a, a, a projection unfolding in your mind and uh, and then there's a tendency that when you're not in meditation you kind of lose that you might remember that that's true but you're not having that same experience anymore and uh, there is a, there's not that kind of delineation. It's like, you know, uh, the, the awareness of no self and emptiness is just consistently a part of experience. And these, these are the kinds of things that, that are the result of your practice. And I think that probably as those things translate out of your practice into your daily life, that's more important than what actually is happening in your practice. And it it gets to be more and more the case uh, that your formal practice is just to, you know, it's like uh, it's like a tuna. It's like, you know, 
sharpening your tools. Uh, it's like, uh, well, there's another aspect to it. I mean, it's like, for me, this is an ongoing process of discovery. I don't know that I'll ever stop learning and discovering uh, new depths of understanding of what it means to you know, be a conscious being in, in this world. And so things, things will come up, and I just look forward to the opportunity to sit down and meditate so I have a chance to just dive right in and, and see where it, it takes me. So there's always a place for the formal practice in there, but the distinctions are not so clear-cut. And also, when I wake up and lay in bed in the morning, I very often find myself being in exactly the same place that I am if I'm sitting here in meditation. I wake up, my mind is fresh, and uh, I just go into that kind of meditative state. And it will happen to me, you know, it's a natural way of being. So, you know, uh, if I have to wait for something, you know, I don't get impatient. I have a wonderful time meditating. (laughs) But it's not like I'm sitting there just uh, trying to be focused on one thing. It's rather I am taking advantage of the opportunity to just sink into that full awareness of the present moment and what's taking place in my mind and uh, experiencing the reality of it. What about with your dreams? Do they disturb you ever? Or My dreams? Yeah, are you aware of your dreams? Yeah, I, I'm not terribly good at remembering dreams, or at least for I, I often wake up and I can remember my dreams very clearly for 15 or 20 minutes. Not <laughs> completely. Most of the time when I dream, I know I'm dreaming. Most of the time when I'm dreaming, I'm actually practicing the same kind of mindfulness that I usually do in my daily life. You know, in my dreams, I'm far more vulnerable to emotional reactions than I am now in my ordinary waking life. So I will react in ways in my dreams and I behave in ways in my dreams due to emotional reactions. And mindfully, I'm watching myself doing that and I'm saying, wow, why, why am I doing that? You know. uh, and one thing that I often do in my dreams, especially when it's things like that, is I'll rewind the dream, start over, say, we'll run that scene again and play it out differently. <laughs> so, but... Uh, but the main thing, most of the time, I just, you know, I, I don't have anything in my dream that I can carry for very long. I will say that since uh, I met Debbie and started experimenting with the neurofeedback, um, the, I, I'm much more able to remember the dreams for a longer period of time. And not only that, the quality you know, a lot of my dreams, maybe yours too, a lot of my dreams are just meaningless bits and pieces of this and that that don't really make that much sense and don't have that much significance and don't forget, don't fit together. And then there's that small proportion that have some some sense of uh, power to them, some meaning, they have an emotional content and things like that. And those kinds of dreams have also increased for me recently, uh, which is in effect due to the neurofeedback that is not effect uh, of, of meditation. Because meditation alone has not ever produced... The main effect meditation has had in my dreams is that I'm almost... They're almost always lucid. I almost always know I'm dreaming. Rarely, occasionally, but not very often, will I have a dream episode where I'm not consciously aware that I'm dreaming. And it's because of the introspective awareness that's been developed in meditation. So, you know, it's like, I'm aware of what's going on right now in my mind. And so when I'm dreaming, I'm aware of what's going on. I'm aware that it's a dream. So that's that's what's been due to the meditation. 
but uh, I've also now been having much, many more dreams that, you know, that they knit together in a meaningful way. And I do remember the, uh, I do them remember them better. So. Yeah, it's very interesting. What else? Do you have dreams? I do. I have a lot of dreams. They used to really disturb me. So I'd wake up and I was very affected emotionally mm-hmm. often. And they've changed over the years. I mean, I used to always be chased by monsters and so forth. And uh-huh. that, right. that kind of thing. But thank God that shifted. Um, <laughs> so I, you know, now and again. But there are, you know, sometimes I do have these very powerful dreams, you know, like a whole tribe of walkabout people from Australia walked over into my dream and talked to me and counseled me. And sometimes I have counselors come and talk to me and tell me things, you know, and I can't remember. <laughs> but, like, I, I don't have lucid dreams, really. I've never... Well, every now and again I wake up in a semi-awake or dream state and I feel, I don't know, energy is moving around or something, you know, like that kind of thing. Yeah, I don't know. I... Do you dream less now, do you think, since you, with all the meditation? Well, because I don't remember dreams very well, it's, it's always been really difficult for me to know how much I dream. And so uh, I couldn't really quantify whether I dream more or less now. So I, I don't really know. I know it's kind of irrelevant to meditation, probably. Just curious about it. Well, I I don't I don't think so. Meditation is all about our minds, who and what we are as as human beings, and how all of this works. And uh, to neglect what happens for you know probably the average person three or four hours out of every day <laughs> is, is not very realistic. The significance of it. Well, that's a really big question. Some people feel dreams have enormous significance, and other people, you know, they're sort of uh, take by clinical psychologists and neuroscientists on dreams, is it's a process by which your mind takes all this, this massive amount of information that comes into it. And does some integration and reorganization and throws out the useless bits and and most of what we what we experience as our dreams is sort of the spillover from that process you know you have if things if something happens to you some new information that needs to get integrated uh, triggers some old fears or negative experiences then you might have a bad dream that's based around that. Okay, I'm not saying that that's an accurate description of the facts, but I'm saying that's that's the kind of explanation that you'd most likely get from a scientific perspective. And of course, the complete opposite of that is the is the view that that uh, our dream life is a connection to uh, a whole psychic sphere that is goes hugely beyond what our ordinary waking consciousness can tap into. And uh, there's a number of reasons why, uh, well, let's just put it this way, that it it seems very reasonable that there's some truth to that as well. And maybe these two views aren't really mutually exclusive. But, Dreams are an important part of our lives and our existence. And so I would never be one to discount their importance and, and their relevance to meditation since that's such a... Meditation is all about changing the way we are for the better. Yeah. What is Buddhism's take on, on dreams? You know, uh, I don't think that you... There's not a... Buddhist take on dreams. Mm-hmm. Uh, in various cultures, you might find particular teachers or particular schools of thought that have uh, given attention to dreams. But it's not something that you find the Buddha himself 
uh, well, he, he didn't present much in the way of philosophical, he was very pragmatic in, in, in all of his approach to everything. And so uh, he used, uh, he, there's a couple of cases I know where he, he used dreams as analogies and metaphor, but I'm not aware that he ever really spoke to the question of what are the significance of dreams. That doesn't mean that we can't. Yeah. Jim Lagasse, is there a correlation between what uh, between a person's intellectual capacity and their capacity to enter deep uh, states of uh, concentration? I don't believe that there is. Can you, can you repeat that? Okay, yeah. It, the question was, is there a correlation between somebody's intellectual capacity and their ability to enter into, did you say deep states of meditation? Concentration. Of uh, concentration. And, uh, okay, and, and I, would, I would say no. You see, there's a, there's a certain degree of vagueness about what we mean by intellectual capacity or intelligence, but pretty much it always comes down to the speed and efficiency with which we can process information. <clears throat> and the part of your mind that processes information that <coughs> basically uh, it's a kind of mental math that takes uh, information that is encoded in the mind in symbolic form and it rearranges it and manipulates it and, and comes to new conclusions, solves problems and things like that. The part of your mind that does that really has nothing to do at all with either uh, deep states of concentration or, or other meditative states. Uh, I think that a high level of intelligence can be, you know, just as it can be helpful in almost anything else. I mean, even if you are a visual artist, uh, a high level of intelligence, if nothing else, can allow you to gather your materials and opportunities together more efficiently, right? Even though you may not use that kind of intelligence in creating your art. So, as with most human activities, a higher degree of uh, intellectual capacity is going to be, it's going to facilitate parts of it, and certainly in terms of meditation and spiritual practice, um, you can catch on to things quicker, you can analyze problems a little more effectively, maybe get past them sooner, and so on and so forth. So it's not without value, but you wouldn't want to overrate it, because it's also a two-edged sword. Uh, very, very often, the really bright, intelligent people aren't even able, or, or it's, uh, I shouldn't say that, but they have to work so much harder to stop thinking and intellectualizing and to get to the place of just experiencing, just being. Uh, that part of your mind that continuously thinks thoughts and solves problems and everything else, as I'm sure you know, everybody else in this room knows, is one of your biggest obstacles when you sit down and meditate. <laughs> so, uh, and uh, some of us are great thinkers and we, we think all the time and we love to think and we, uh, we approach life as though we can think our way out of it successfully. <laughs> and it's something that we have to overcome in our meditation. So, uh, it's not, it's, there's not a strong correlation at all. And also, uh, just, just to reinforce, it's always good to throw a little authoritative source into that. Uh, the Buddha speaks of certain bhikkhus who are uh, arhats, but not 
terribly bright intellectually. So, you know, so. So, um, deep states of absorption uh, is a human is an innate human capacity. Yes. And. Um, distinction, there's a kind of wisdom that is different than what we might normally think of as wise. As we normally think of wise as some something to do with knowledge and something to do with uh, skillful application of knowledge and, and education. And education and things like that. Yeah. But you know, if we I say, well, well, what does it mean to be uh, a highly spiritually evolved being? What does it mean to be on in, in one or another of those stages of awakening? And there, there is no part of the definition of any of those stages of awakening that has to do with that kind of intellectual wisdom or even especially with being able to give other people good advice about how to live their lives. Uh, it's the kind of wisdom that manifests in the way we see the world, react to the world, react to other people and circumstances around us. It's that, it's that kind of wisdom that manifests through uh, through the more fundamental connection that we have with the reality that we're a part of. And so a highly evolved spiritual being will be, will be happy, will be at peace, will be loving, will be compassionate. And these are the products of that kind of wisdom. Now, a lot of times they'll have the other kind of wisdom too. You know? And if they have the other kind of wisdom too, then this makes them much more skilled at being able to guide other people to follow the path to get to the same place that they are. And so there's a value to this other kind of wisdom. Uh, but, but they're really distinct and they don't necessarily have to occur together. You have all kinds of wisdom and be a nasty, miserable, or whatever. <laughs> One of the things that <coughs> I wanted to mention to everyone tonight, anybody here attend uh, uh, the uh, workshop this last weekend with her eyes? Did you? No? Nobody did? Okay. You did? Huh? Mm-hmm. Huh. How was that? I liked it really. Um, there wasn't a lot of meditation. Yeah, well, that's... Tends to be the way it goes. So on. I think I think I really like the um, the, the, the activities and the, the practices we did. Mm-hmm. But I just treat people I find it really effective. But it's a little bit of information and a lot of meditation, yeah. and it's kind of the reverse. So the content is good. And uh, I, mean, I really like that James Ross. He's um, he's just got a very kind of slow, centered approach to 
to, to working with joy that's very uh, common sense mm -hmm. and, it's, and it's much more uh, feeling into it than, than like a, some teachers who are really kind of intellectual about it. It's just it's refreshing. It's not always what I relate to, but um, I can't think of, right now I can't really think of any good specifics about <laughs> what we went over. Um, there's a, we talked a lot about intentionality with joy and then choosing, um, choosing to, to um, in, interpret experience in a positive way yeah. to kind of um, you know, focus attention on the positive. Um, so it was valuable. Yeah. Well, that's good. Yeah. Do you happen to remember, did he mention this book? Which one is that? It's called Buddhist, Buddhist Brain. He did it all. He mentioned a few meditation researchers. I don't know. Uh, but he, he didn't really touch on a lot of like religion yeah. and neuroscience stuff. Well, somehow or another, I, there was a connection between Varej and, and Yeah, there, there is. He did mention it. I wasn't there, but my my tea ceremony teacher, my sensei, yeah. um, with tea ceremony, was was at that workshop and, and, and mentioned it to me, which is why I mentioned it to you. <laughs> well, it, as it happens, I, is it Rick I had, Harrison? What's that? Is it Rick Harrison? Is that yeah, that's right, yeah, Rick Hansen. Rick Hansen and Richard Mendes. Yeah, mm -hmm. Davis. He mentioned him several times. Well, as it happens, I had, uh, I, I think I'd come across Rick Hansen's website and gotten a little bit interested and had ordered this book and it arrived maybe two weeks ago and was sitting on my shelf when it opened, but uh, uh, Mita, uh brought it to my attention. Last night I started reading it and I want to recommend this book to you. It's a tremendous book. It's called Buddha's Brain, Happiness, Love, and Wisdom, A Practical Neuroscience of Happiness, Love, and Wisdom. What I like about it these guys are PhDs in neuroscience, but they're also Buddhists. And so it's putting Buddhism in very 21st century terms. And if you get this book, you know, you'll find he's saying so many things that I've said to you here in these evenings. I mean, uh, there's a lot of, well, I wish I Witness. <laughs> <laughs> That's a <your> compliment. <laughs> it did motivate me to spend more time today writing my own book. <laughs> but I, I do want to recommend this to you. I, I think it's really helpful in, in uh, looking at Buddhism, as I say, from a very 21st century point of view. It incorporates some psychology and some neuroscience. But it's, you don't have to know anything at all about this. You know, because if there's any tiny piece of that kind of information that he, or I should say they, uh, that they want to discuss in this book, they, they tell you everything you need to know with no, no assumptions. Mm -hmm. uh, and it is, it is it's quite relevant to um, what I uh, mentioned to you last week, uh, the approach that I want to, to take for in, in this teaching for the next little while, what I call soul creation. The practical neuroscience of happiness, love, and wisdom is their way of talking about soul creation. It's taking uh, the facts uh, the truths that the Dharma tells us, and what we can what we can do in terms of meditation and Dharma practice to to change ourselves and become become what we want to be. So it's very good in that way. So please do consider getting a copy and having a read. And uh, also, you know, uh, it might be a really good topic for a, a reading group. But, yeah. So, is there anybody here that would be interested in participating in a reading group? Mm -hmm. Oh. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. Perhaps, Sujata, maybe you could get them to 
put their names and phone numbers on a list or something. So, because it would be very helpful to, to do some reading and discussion, discussion together. <clears throat> so, well, yeah, soul creation. You see, I think you all already know this. The, the Buddha taught that there is no soul <laughs> on that time. That the, the person you think you are is just a figment of your imagination. <laughs> but uh, to take that from a positive perspective, uh, I, I want us to look at why, as human beings, w- what it is that we think it would be to be like to to have a soul or the kind of self that we think we we uh, have. Uh, what the value of that might be, and then to see how that might fit in with. Our aspirations for the kind of life that we would like to live. We call them our spiritual aspirations. And so, you know, uh, on a number of occasions recently, questions have come up that, you know, I have uh, gently revealed the true secret teachings of Buddhism, which are. Supposedly, Buddhists believe in reincarnation, right? And keep coming back over and over and over again and everything. Well, the true secret teaching of Buddhism is that the self that you think you are doesn't exist and it's not coming back. <laughs> so. What's that? Thank goodness. Thank well. <laughs> yeah, at, you know, at, at 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 the level of reason, thank goodness. But at the level of emotion, it's like, oh no. <laughs> so that's what that's kind of what we want to work with and reconcile. You know, and so uh, I kind of left you last week. Uh, those of you that were here. Uh, I had asked you to consider these ideas of, of what what we mean, what it is we think of as our self and as our soul. And I gave you three characteristics and, uh, and two functions that I think pretty concisely describe uh, what philosophically and psychologically we think of as a soul or self. And those can be put in the form of a sentence that we believe that there is a single first characteristic, enduring second characteristic, independent third characteristic, owner of experience, the first functional aspect, and doer of deeds, which is the other functional aspect. So that's what we think there is. That's what we think we are. The unitary, enduring, independent, experiencer and doer. Right? Just... Yeah, for those of you who were here last week, hopefully you thought about that a bit. And for those of you who were think about it now. And it's just... But none of those are true. None of those are true, absolutely. None of those are true. And this is the point that... This is the point that Buddha made. The, the most central tenet of the entire teaching of the Buddha uh, is that there is no self that this self that we think we are described in those terms doesn't exist because none of those things are true. And that was that was his great discovery. 
And at the time, all of these many, many ascetics, both independently and in groups, wandering around in the forests of India at that time, doing all kinds of spiritual practices, the majority of them, not all of them, but the majority of them, were bent upon discovering the true nature of the self, because at that time, the philosophical conclusion of the existing Brahma, Brahmanical teachings based on the Vedas. Uh, and this was also the time when uh, a commentarial literature on the Vedas called the Upanishads were being written. And so these Upanishads were very much about this particular philosophical point of view that was the basis for what these most of these ascetics were doing. They were looking to discover the true self because the conclusion was that the self or soul or Atman was in fact identical with the true source of everything. Uh, sat is the true nature of the source of everything. Pure, uh, pure being, Sat, pure consciousness, Chit, and pure bliss, ananda. So satchit ananda means pure consciousness, being consciousness, bliss. And this is the nature of Brahma, or the source of everything. And so that we human beings are trapped on this cyclic wheel of rebirth, that when we die, we'll be reborn again. We'll go through this whole thing again, and we'll die again, and we'll be reborn again. And whatever we do in this life, we'll create either some, some good consequences or bad consequences, so we'll either come back as a king or a cockroach, depending, you know. But if the wheel goes on forever and ever and ever. And so these ascetics were all doing all kinds of practices to discover the true nature of the self, because by discovering the true nature of the self, they would realize their identity with Brahman, and when they realized their identity with Brahman, then they would be liberated from the wheel of samsara, the cyclic wheel of rebirth. And that's the view that the Buddha, when he left home and entered into ascetic practices, that's what he entered into. That's most of what was going on. There were, there were some ascetics who were like modern materialists who are saying that, well, that's not true. When the body dies, the soul dies. And that's the end of it. So therefore, uh, you know, it doesn't matter what you do in life. Nothing matters. Everything's meaningless. Do what you want. Life, the only meaning life has is the meaning you make for it anyway. You know, and so who's to say what's right or wrong or so forth? Uh, there were a couple of other schools of thought at the time, but the predominant was the ones that believe, believed in there was this true self to be realized, which would bring about liberation. One would become one with Brahman, and one would spend all of eternity in a state of pure being, consciousness, and bliss. And the others that said, forget about it, make hay while the sun shines, uh, you know, <clears throat> this is it. And the Buddha came along, and he looked into those deeply and did all those practices. And he came out, and in his very first teaching to another group of ascetics that he had practiced with before for five years was, guess what, guys? There is no Atman. Very, very radical, radically different teaching. So radical that down to this day, Many of the world's Buddhists haven't caught on yet. And instead, they believe in reincarnation and they give money to the temple so that they'll come back as a king rather than a cockroach. But but I want to read to you a little bit about 
what happens when somebody who has been on this kind of search for many, many years for the true self, when they encounter the Buddha's teaching for the first time. So this is this is a reading from a story of uh, two very close friends who became the two chief disciples of the Buddha, Sariputta and Mahamogalana. They were very close friends, grew up together from wealthy Brahmin families. And they were of a spiritual bent, and when they reached maturity, rather than marrying and, and you know, becoming prestigious Brahmins in their uh, community, they went to the forest, became ascetics, uh, the same way that the Buddha did, and were engaged for many years with the, in these practices uh, in search in search of the true self. And they wanted to achieve the union with Brahman that would ultimately be liberating. And they spent a lot of time together, but at one point they separated, and they promised each other that, and this was referred to as attaining the deathless. You know, and they promised each other, if either of us should attain the deathless, we'll immediately go and um, and tell, find the other and tell them. Okay. The deathless? The deathless. Uh, because, you see, <clears throat> in the naive perception of reincarnation, it's, oh, what a relief. Death is not final. I'll be reborn. But in the more sophisticated understanding of reincarnation is, Oh my God, I have to die over and over and over again. So the liberation from the cycle of rebirth came to be known as, or uh, from the cycle of reincarnation, I should say, came to be known as attaining the deathless. Okay, Okay, so this is the story of uh, it's a little hard for me to read here. Could you turn that light off a little bit? Oh, that'll make any difference. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Asaji was the name of one of the five. In the very after the Buddha's enlightenment, uh, he went through a thing about whether he anybody else would ever be able to understand this or not. And so the first people he, he taught were five ascetics who had practiced with him for many years before his enlightenment. So he went and he found them. And at first they didn't want to have anything to do with him because you know, he wasn't starving himself and you know, sleeping on beds of nails and stuff like that anymore. He wasn't following ascetic practices. But in the end, they listened to him. One of them was Asaji, and all five, all five of them became enlightened as a result of the time he spent with them there. So they were his first, they were his first students and the first, uh, the first people to become enlightened as a result of his teaching. One of them was the Venerable Asaji. When the Venerable Asaji had finished his round, he left Rajagaha with alms food. Then the wanderer Sariputta, that's one of the two friends that I mentioned to you, then the wanderer Sariputta went up to him and greeted him. When this courteous formal talk was finished, he stood at one side and he said to him, Friend, your faculties are serene. The color of your skin is clear and bright. Under whom have you gone forth? Or who is your teacher? Or whose law do you confess? There is the great monk, friend, the son of the Sakyans who went forth from a Sakyan clan. I have gone forth under that blessed one. He is my teacher. It is that blessed one's law that I confess. And Sariputta said, But what does the venerable one's teacher say? What does he tell? And Asaji says, I have only recently gone forth, friend. I have only just come to this law and discipline. I cannot teach you the law in detail. Still, I will tell you its meaning in brief. And Sariputta said, So be it, friend. Say much or little as it suits you. Tell me but the meaning now, for I need no more than the meaning, with no thought of details yet. 
The venerable Asaji told the wanderer Sariputra this sketch of the law. The perfect one has told the cause of causally arisen things, and what brings their cessation to. Such is the doctrine preached by the great monk. Now when the wanderer Sariputra heard this statement of the law, the spotless, immaculate vision of the Dhamma arose in him. And this is the important quote. All that is subject to arising is subject to cessation. This is the truth. Even if that were all, you have attained the state where is no sorrow, that we for many times, ten thousand ages, have let pass by unseen. All that is subject to arising is subject to cessation. And you see, the re- and so he, he achieved the first stage of awakening on hearing that. But of course he had the background of spending years and years doing these practices, meditating, diving deep within to his own mind, exploring, looking for his true self, his true nature. And as you said, none of these things are true. And he had discovered that, but he couldn't see that because he was determined to, to discover the Atma, the true nature of self. And so it took, when it was finally said in clear enough terms that, that everything that arises due to causes and conditions, which is certainly, you cannot examine your mind without discovering it. Everything in it is a result of causes and conditions. There is no core substance to your mind. There is only the cumulative result of causes and conditions. And it hit Sariputra like a ton of bricks. Whatever arises due to causes and conditions is bound to pass away. And so this this is the this is the real secret teaching there. But what we need to do now is to look more closely at what we are. Now, what the Buddha said, he said that if you look at an individual, at a person, that what you see there are five aggregates. And we've talked about that before. And then you examine that, and you discover that, indeed, everywhere you look, you only find aggregates. You don't find single anything. So if you're looking for something that's single, enduring, uh, independent. Uh, one thing you don't find is a single anything. You find a whole lot of everything. In your mind, you find a whole lot of everything. You find your mind is many different processes. And some of them, it's hard to believe that they belong to the same aggregate. They are so different from each other and so opposed to each other. You don't find anything that's enduring because the self that you think you are when you really look at it is constantly changing, flip-flops, exists in all kinds of different versions, all due to causes and conditions, and everything that happens to you modifies and molds that self, and you've got a completely different self on your hands. There's no kind of consistency in there. And of course, as far as the independence goes, we find that it is everything about us. We are totally influenced by causes and conditions of every sort. But the Buddha also, in his understanding of this, you know, it didn't just stop with with, okay, uh, otherwise he would have become a materialist. He says, all right, uh, you know, it's even worse than you guys thought. Not only does your soul die when the body dies, he never had one to begin with, you know. <laughs> but he actually goes beyond that, and this is where it starts to get, uh, to get positive, that he realized that, well, the problem is that we're all, that, that life is a pretty bad deal, that we're all suffering, that we're born with no guarantee of anything except that we're going to experience pain, we're going to experience loss, 
we're going to die. Uh, if we live long enough, we're going to get old, and we're going to be subject to, to sickness um, and, and other forms of uh, uh, physical and emotional misery uh, sometime between when we're born and, and die, whether we live, live long enough to get old or not. So, I mean, basically, that's the situation we're faced with. But what's wrong with this whole thing is the suffering that we're experiencing. And he, could, he saw, and this is what no one else could see very clearly, the connection between the suffering and this false belief in our independence, our separateness. So when he said that there was no self, while on the one hand it was in fact the denial of this Atman that everybody was chasing, but even more than that, it was an identification of the root problem, a self, the whole notion of self, has no meaning except in terms of what is not self and the boundary between them. So the entire idea of self cuts us off from everything else. And every problem comes from that idea of separation, that imposition of a selfhood that, that we create. When we impose a selfhood on ourselves, then there is something that can suffer. There's something that can lose. There's something that can die. Do you see that? And so this is where the real secret to the, the teaching of the Buddha comes into it. This is where this is how, this is really the only way that we can ever become liberated from suffering. This is ultimately the only way that we could become a being who is invulnerable to suffering of every kind and who lives a life that is, consists entirely of love and compassion. And that is through completely seeing through and letting go of the mind-imposed boundary that distinguishes self from not self, self from other. And so this is, this is, the, this is the great secret. This is the wonderful discovery that has all of this potential to it. Not easy to understand but not that difficult either. What we have to do, what we have to overcome though, is this mind that this composite conditioned mind by which we experience ourselves and the world. You have a lifetime of conditioning and also an inherent tendency that you were born with to overcome in liberating yourself. Um, the inherent tendency. You were born with a brain that would give rise to a mind that would, of necessity, differentiate its self from everything else. Because, in fact, that's the reason that you have a brain that generates a mind, so that you can do this differentiation, because this differentiation makes you very effective in the world at ensuring your own survival and reproducing many copies of yourself. And that's what life is, that's what the stuff that we call life does whether it's oak trees or lizards or hummingbirds or people. It does its best to survive and to gather together the resources uh, of one form or another 
to reproduce itself. And so you're born with a brain that is going to cause you to think in those ways. And it's worked very, very well. And uh, But one thing about call it Mother Nature, evolution, whatever you want. Let's, let's call it Mother Nature. Mother Nature has her own agenda. And her agenda is what we see, the proliferation of life in the world. Mother Nature's agenda is not particularly concerned with the suffering that we experience as human beings. And as a matter of fact, if you think about it, as human beings, we are prone to far more suffering than most other forms of life. Um, Mosquitoes and flies, you know, don't contemplate their own death or worry about the future or have remorse for their past (coughs) actions. And we do all of those things, and more, and much, much more. So, you are a being that experiences suffering uh, because your very existence was tailored so that you would be in a state of dissatisfaction, craving, desire. And in order to ensure your survival, if anything hurt, or tasted bad, or felt bad, that you would attempt to escape it or destroy it. And if anything felt good or tasted good or or made you happy, that you would pursue it and want more of it. And you've been operating in that program your entire life. And that whole program, is the kernel of that program, is that boundary that's imposed that says, not that I'm a part of this magnificent whole, but I am separate, I'm distinct, I'm independent. And, I mean, it, it works really well. In some ways. What's that? In some ways. It works very well in terms of the goals of, of life. And uh, not only that, we are conscious beings with the capacities that we have uh, because the, the nature of the universe is such that once evolution starts, uh, it's going to necessarily lead in this particular direction. Whatever is most successful. Offhand, uh, at least in terms of uh, warm-blooded animals, what would you describe as the most successful warm-blooded animal on this planet? Successful from the standpoint of of repropriation and survival? Uh, And and invasion of different uh, uh, ecosystems and uh, the the capturing of resources. Oh, oh, (laughs) one-blooded. If you took that out of it, insects have a really strong case. But also, you know, it's wonderful to be human beings. Is that the answer, human? Human, that's the answer, yeah. (laughs) Oh, gee. (laughs) But also, you know, it's... uh, One thing about Mother Nature is that she may have opened a Pandora's box because uh, human beings have had a pretty disastrous impact on the rest of her works, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The ideal thing that we could come to is if human beings could survive and overcome the suffering that characterizes our, our lives and perhaps use our unique faculties to whatever the future of the process of evolution of the material universe is, to contribute to that in a positive way rather than a negative way. So, 
that re- that's really getting us to soul creation as individuals can we become more like what we would ideally like to be and collectively can we change the world and the future as a result of that and the answer is potentially yes whether it will actually happen or not I don't know but the potential is there But it begins with transformation of ourselves. Chilagansa, there are some beliefs that we already are that. The difficulty is we don't realize it. Well, I mean, that's a fact. The, the separation that we experience uh, is an illusion on, on every level. That separation is an illusion. But nevertheless, as long as we don't realize that, we suffer. And as long as we suffer, our suffering causes us to do things that enormously magnify the suffering of each other, which is to say, our own suffering. Because if you look at all of the suffering, all of the human suffering that exists in the world right now, the vast majority of that is inflicted by humans on on humans. And it's inflicted by humans on humans unnecessarily, but it arises out of the compulsion of desire, compulsions of desire and aversion, greed and hatred, and ignorance, of course, because it's because the ignorance is there. So, what do we have to work with? We have a mind that is multifold, multi-parts. Your mind consists of many, many different parts. Yet, the soul that we had hopefully had, that we would discover, was one thing, not a whole bunch of parts. But perhaps we could unify all these different parts in such a way that it makes a pretty good facsimile of a single thing, right? So, this, this is one place to begin. Part of our problem is all these different parts of our mind have different agendas, and they're all operating from the same basic paradigm, which is that there is a self to be looked after, and the, uh, uh, the drive for looking after the self is in response to pleasure and pain and by means of desire and aversion. But the conditioning has led to all kinds of different different parts of your mind, the different aspects of yourself, having completely different ideas about how to take care of this self and, and protect it and uh, reward it and so forth. Right? So some part of you wants to eat the cheesecake. The other part of it knows it's bad for your blood pressure and cholesterol and everything else. Right? You know, one part of you thinks that that uh, uh, the best way to achieve happiness is to uh, sit down and meditate, and the other part of you says that yeah, but maybe going to the singles bar would solve the problem, <laughs> at least in the in the short term. And, you know, all of these different and. and uh, and those are even oversimplifications. In everything we do, we find we're divided against ourselves with a lot of uncertainty. And we're running out of time now. But what I hope to develop in this is that <clears throat> in order to modify ourselves to become more of an idealized soul-like being, there are some principles that we can work on. Instead of acting compulsively through desire and aversion and in reaction to pleasure and pain, 
there are principles, principles based in recognition that we aren't really separate. So that, now those principles are embodied in the ideas of generosity, virtue, and patience. Virtue in Buddhist terms is is elaborated, but if we look at the root of all the elaborations, it's not harming. If I am a part of the whole, and you are a part of the whole, we're all a part of the whole, and if I, if I can cause all of these different parts of my mind to take as their prime directive, not, not the cherishing of this isolated separate self, but of the larger self of which we're all a part, that's going to help a lot to unify things right there. So if we look at virtue, it's about causing no harm to yourself or to others. And it's a very simple principle. It's the basis of right action, uh, not causing physical harm. Uh, it's not causing, uh, it's not uh, taking things from others. Uh, it's uh, not causing emotional harm in all the kind of different kinds of ways that we have right speech, not engaging in false speech or divisive speech or harsh speech and so on and so forth. So all of these things ultimately come down to not harming ourselves and not harming others. And this really works if you begin to see that we're all one, that I'm you, that you are me, that we're all one. And if you can begin to make all of your speech and all of your actions oriented towards the goal of benefiting the whole. And not harming is the very first step in that. If, you know, why should the right hand strike the left hand? Makes no sense, right? And even, and you don't even have to really fully understand or feel or appreciate the oneness that we all are to start practicing in those terms, to start practicing virtue. But not practicing virtue because there's this set of rules that says that you have to not not harm and not lie, but rather because you realize that ultimately you're trying to achieve this higher this realization of a higher self, this realization of no separate self. Um, You're not following rules so that in the future your private self will benefit from them, right? I'm not not lying and not stealing, so I'll come back as a king instead of a cockroach. Or I'm not lying and not stealing so that people will like me and be my friends and, and like that, but you're doing it for a much more profound reason, that the self that your mind naturally wants to identify with is being transformed from being a separate, isolated, lonely, vulnerable, uh, ultimately to disappear self, to being a self that uh, does not have that same vulnerability and is not subject to death same way as well. So, 